Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Mao's On Practice and Contradiction. Today we have two chapters, both on the same writing from Stalin and just different critiques of it. Or not even that different. Uh, this second chapter begins with what almost feels like a summary of the previous chapter. Again, Mao wrote these as a series of distinct letters and they have been compiled into this book. So just know going into the second chapter, it's going to repeat some points, but then it ends up getting a lot more granular and goes point by point through some of what Stalin said and quotes it directly. So it ends up being a lot more in-depth. So let's get started. Chapter 8. Concerning Stalin's Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR. Provincial and regional committees must study this book. Footnote 1. In the past, everyone read it without gaining a deep impression. It should be studied in conjunction with China's actual circumstances. The first three chapters contain much that is worth paying attention to, much that is correct, although there are places where perhaps Stalin himself did not make things clear enough. For example, in chapter 1 he says only a few things about economic laws and how to go about planning the economy without unfolding his ideas. Or, it may be that to his mind, Soviet planning of the economy already reflected objective governing principles. On the question of heavy industry, light industry, and agriculture, the Soviet Union did not lay enough emphasis on the latter two and had losses as a result. In addition, they did not do a good job of combining the immediate and the long-term interests of the people. In the main, they walked on one leg. Comparing the planning, which of us, after all, had the better adapted, planned, proportionate development? Another point, Stalin emphasized only technology, technical cadre. He wanted nothing but technology, nothing but cadre, no politics, no masses. This too is walking on one leg, and in industry they walk on one leg when they pay attention to heavy industry but not to light industry. Furthermore, they did not point out the main aspects of the contradictions in the relationships between the departments of heavy industry. They exaggerated the importance of heavy industry, claiming that steel was the foundation, machinery the heart and soul. Our position is that grain is the mainstay of agriculture, steel of industry, and that if steel is taken as the mainstay, then once we have the raw material, the machine industry will follow along. Stalin raised questions in chapter 1. He suggested the objective governing principles, but he failed to provide satisfactory answers. In chapter 2, he discusses commodities. In chapter 3, the law of value. Relatively speaking, I favor many of the views expressed. To divide production into two major departments, and to say that the means of production are not commodities, these points deserve study. In Chinese agriculture, there are still many means of production that should be commodities. My view is that the last of the three appended letters, footnote 2, is entirely wrong. It expresses a deep uneasiness, a belief that the peasantry cannot be trusted to release agricultural machinery, but would hang on to it. On the one hand, Stalin says that the means of production belong to state ownership. On the other, he says that the peasants cannot afford them. The fact is that he is deceiving himself. The state controlled the peasantry very, very tightly, inflexibly. For the two transitions, Stalin failed to find the proper ways and means, a vexing matter for him. 
capitalism leaves behind it the commodity form, which we must still retain for the time being. Commodity exchange laws, governing value, play no regulating role in our production. This role is played by planning, by the great leap forward under planning, by politics in command. Stalin speaks only of the production relations, not of the superstructure, nor of the relationship between superstructure and economic base. Chinese cadres participate in production, workers participate in management, sending cadres down to lower levels to be tempered, discarding old rules and regulations, all these pertain to the superstructure, to ideology. Stalin mentions economics only, not politics. He may speak of selfless labor, but in reality even an hour's labor is begrudged. There is no selflessness at all. The role of people, the role of the laborer, these are not mentioned. If there were no communist movement, it is hard to imagine making the transition to communism. Quote, all people are for me, I for all people, end quote. This does not belong. It ends up with everything being connected to the self. Some say Marx said it. If he did, let's not make propaganda out of it. All people for me means everybody for me, the individual. I am for all. Well, how many can you be for? Bourgeois right is manifested as bourgeois law and education. We want to destroy a part of the ideology of bourgeois right, the lordly pose, the three styles, the bureaucratic, the sectarian, and the subjective, and the five heirs, the officious, the arrogant, the apathetic, the extravagant, and the precious. But commodity circulation, the commodity form, the law of value, these, on the other hand, cannot be destroyed summarily despite the fact that they are bourgeois categories. If we now carry on propaganda for the total elimination of the ideology of bourgeois right, it would not be a reasonable position, bear in mind. There are a few in socialist society, landlords, rich peasants, right-wingers, who are partial to capitalism and advocate it. But the vast majority are thinking of crossing over to communism. This, however, has to be done by steps. You cannot get to heaven in one step. Take the people's communes. On the one hand, they have to develop self-sufficient production. On the other, commodity exchange. We use the commodity exchange and the law of value as tools for developing production and facilitating the transition. We are a nation whose commodity production is very underdeveloped. Last year, we produced 3.7 trillion catties of food grains. Footnote 3. Of that number, commodity grains amounted to about 800 or 900 billion caddies. Apart from grain, industrial crops like cotton and hemp are also underdeveloped. Therefore, we have to have this commodity stage of development. At present, there are still a good many counties where there is no charge for food, but they cannot pay wages. In Hopai, there are three such counties, and another that can pay wages, but not much. Three or five. One. So we still have to develop production, to develop things that can be sold other than food grains. At the Scion Agricultural Conference, this point was insufficiently considered. In sum, we are a nation whose commerce is underdeveloped, and yet in many respects we have entered socialism. We must eliminate a part of bourgeois right, but commodity production and exchange must still be kept. Now there is a tendency to feel that the sooner communism comes the better, some suggest that in only three or five years we will be making the transition. 
in Fan County, Shangtung, it was suggested that four years might be a little slow. At present, there are some economists who do not enjoy economics. Yurashenka. Footnote 4. For one. For now and until sometime in the future, we shall have to expand allocation and delivery to the communes, and we shall have to expand commodity production. Otherwise, we won't be able to pay wages or improve life. Some of our comrades are guilty of a misapprehension when, coming upon commodities and commodity production, they want to destroy bourgeois rule every single day. E.g., they say wages, grades, etc. are detrimental to the free supply system. In 1953, we changed the free supply system into a wage system. Footnote 5. This approach was basically correct. We had to take one step backward. But there was a problem. We also took a step backward in the matter of grades. As a result, there was a furore over this matter. After a period of rectification, grades were scaled down. The grade system is a father-son relation, a cat-and-mouse relation. It has to be attacked day after day, sending down the cadres to lower levels, running the experimental fields. Footnote 6. These are great ways of changing the grade system. Otherwise, no great leaps. In urban people's communes, capitalists can enter and serve as personnel, but the capitalist label should stay on them. With respect to socialism and communism, what is meant by constructing socialism? We raise two points. One, the concentrated manifestation of constructing socialism is making socialist, all-embracing public ownership, footnote 7, a reality. Two, Constructing socialism means turning commune-level collective ownership into public ownership. Some comrades disapprove of drawing such a hard and fast line between these two types of ownership system, seeing the communes as being already completely publicly owned. In reality, however, there are two distinct systems. One type is public ownership, as in the Anshan Iron and Steelworks. The other is commune-level collective ownership. If we do not recognize this, what is the use of socialist construction? Stalin admitted the distinction when he spoke of three conditions. These three basic conditions make sense and may be summarized as follows. 1. Increase social output. 2. Raise collective ownership to public ownership. 3. Go from exchange of commodities to exchange of products, from exchange value to use value. On the two above-mentioned points, we Chinese are 1. Expanding and striving to increase output, concurrently promoting industry and agriculture, with preference given to developing heavy industry, and 2. Raising small collective ownership to public ownership, and then further to all embracing public ownership. Those who do not admit these distinctions, between types of ownership, would seem to hold the view that we have already arrived at public ownership. This is wrong. Stalin was speaking of culture when he proposed the three conditions, the physical development and education of the whole people. For this, he proposed four conditions. A. Six hours work per day. B. Combining technical education with work. C. Improving residential conditions. D. Raising wages. Raising wages and lowering prices are particularly helpful here but the political conditions are missing. All these conditions are basically to increase production. 
Once output is plentiful, it will be easier to solve the problem of turning collective ownership into public ownership. To increase production, we need more, faster, better, more economically. And for this, we need politics in command. The four concurrent promotions, the rectification campaigns, the smashing of the ideology of bourgeois right. Add to this the people's communes, and it becomes all the easier to achieve. More, better, faster, more economically. What are the implications of all embracing public ownership? There are two. One, the means of production are owned by the whole people. And two, the output is owned by the whole people. The characteristic of the people's commune is that it is the basic level at which industry, agriculture, the military, education, and commerce are to be integrated in our social structure. At the present time, it is the basic level administration organization. The militia deals with foreign threats, especially from the imperialists. The commune is the best organizational form for carrying out the two transitions, first from socialist, the present, to all-embracing public, and then from all-embracing public to communist ownership. In future, when the transitions have been completed, the commune will be the basic mechanism of communist society. Chapter 9. Critique of Stalin's Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR Stalin's book from first to last says nothing about the superstructure. It is not concerned with people, it considers things not people. Does the kind of supply system for consumer goods help spur economic development or not? He should at least have touched on this. Is it better to have commodity production or is it better not to? Everyone has to study this. Stalin's point of view in his last letter, footnote 1, is almost completely wrong. The basic error is mistrust of the peasants. Parts of the first, second, and third chapters are correct. Other parts could have been clearer. For example, the discussion of the planned economy is not complete. The rate of development of the Soviet economy is not high enough, although it is faster than the capitalists' rate. Relations between agriculture and industry, as well as between light and heavy industry, are not clearly explained. It looks as if they have had serious losses. The relationship between long and short-term interests has not seen any spectacular developments. They walk on one leg, we walk on two. They believe that technology decides everything, that cadres decide everything. Speaking only of expert, never of red. Only of the cadres, never of the masses. This is walking on one leg. As far as heavy industry goes, they have failed to find the primary contradiction, calling steel the foundation, machinery the heart and guts, coal the food. For us, steel is the mainstay, the primary contradiction in industry while food grains are the mainstay in agriculture. Other things develop proportionally. In the first chapter, he discusses grasping the laws, but without proposing a method. On commodity production and the law of value, he has a number of views that we approve of ourselves, but there are problems as well. Limiting commodity production to the means of subsistence is really rather doubtful. Mistrust of the peasants is the basic viewpoint of the third letter. Essentially, Stalin did not discover a way to make the transition from collective to public ownership. Commodity, production, and exchange are forms we have kept, while in connection with the law of value, we must speak of planning, and at the same time, politics in command. He speaks only of the relations of production, not of the superstructure or politics, or the role of the people. 
Communism cannot be reached unless there is a communist movement. Footnote 2. 1. Quote, These comrades, it is evident, confuse laws of science, which reflect objective processes in nature or society, processes which take place independently of the will of man, with the laws which are issued by governments, which are made by the will of man, and which have only juridical validity, but they must not be confused. End quote. This principle is basically correct, but two things are wrong. First, the conscious activity of the party and the masses is not sufficiently brought out. Second, it is not comprehensive enough in that it fails to explain that what makes government degrees correct is not only that they emerge from the will of the working class, but also the fact that they faithfully reflect the imperatives of objective economic laws. 2. Quote, Leaving aside astronomical, geological, and other similar processes, which man really is powerless to influence, even if he has come to know the laws of their development, end quote. This argument is wrong. Human knowledge and the capability to transform nature have no limit. Stalin did not consider these matters developmentally. What cannot now be done may be done in the future. 3. Quote, the same must be said of the laws of economic development, the laws of political economy, whether in the period of capitalism or in the period of socialism. Here, too, the laws of economic development, as in the case of natural science, are objective laws, reflecting processes of economic development which take place independently of the will of man. End quote. How do we go about planning the economy? There is not enough attention given to light industry, to agriculture. 4. Quote, this is why Engels says in the same book, these laws of his own social action, hitherto standing face to face with man as laws of nature foreign to and dominating him, will then be used with full understanding, and so mastered by him. Anti-During. End quote. Freedom is necessary objective law understood by people. Such law confronts people, is independent of them, but once people understand it, they can control it. 5. Quote, the specific role of Soviet government was due to two circumstances. First, that what Soviet government had to do was not to replace one form of exploitation by another, as was the case in earlier revolutions, but to abolish exploitation altogether. Second, that in view of the absence in the country of any ready-made rudiments of a socialist economy, it had to create new socialist forms of economy, starting from scratch, so to speak. End quote. The inevitability of socialist economic laws, that is, something that needs to be studied. At the Chengdu conference, I said that we would have to see whether or not our general program, more, faster, better, more economically, the three concurrent promotions and the mass line, would flop, footnote 3, or if it could succeed. This cannot be demonstrated for several or even as many as 10 years. The laws of the revolution, which used to be doubted by some, have now been proved correct because the enemy has been overthrown. Can socialist construction work? People still have doubts. Does our Chinese practice conform to the economic laws of China? This has to be studied. My view is that if the practice conforms generally, things will be all right. 6. Quote, this, 
creating new socialist forms of economy from scratch, was undoubtedly a difficult, complex, and unprecedented task. End quote. With respect to the creating of socialist economic forms, we have the president of the Soviet Union, and for this reason should do a bit better than they. If we ruin things, it will show that Chinese Marxism does not work. As to the difficulty and complexity of the tasks, things are no different from what the Soviet Union faced. 7. Quote, it is said that the necessity for balanced, proportionate, development of the national economy in our country enables the Soviet government to abolish existing economic laws and to create new ones. That is absolutely untrue. Our yearly and five-yearly plans must not be confused with the objective economic law of balanced proportionate development of the national economy. End quote. This is the crux of the matter. 8. Quote, this means that the law of balanced development of the national economy makes it possible for our planning bodies to plan social production correctly, but possibility must not be confused with actuality. They are two different things. In order to turn the possibility into actuality, it is necessary to study this economic law, to master it, to learn to apply it with full understanding, and to compile such plans as fully reflect the requirements of this law. It cannot be said that the requirements of this economic law are fully reflected by our yearly and five-yearly plans. End quote. The central point of this passage is that we must not confuse the objective law of planned proportionate development with planning. In the past, we too devised plans, but they frequently caused a storm. Too much, too little. Blindly, we bumped into things, never sure of the best way. Only after suffering tortuous lessons, moving in U-shaped patterns, everyone racking their brains to think of answers, did we hit upon the 40-article agricultural program which we are now putting into effect. And we are in the midst of devising a new 40 articles. After another three years' bitter struggle, we will develop further, and after full and sufficient discussions, we will again proceed. Can we make it a reality? It remains to be proved in objective practice. We worked on industry for eight years, but did not realize that we had to take steel as the mainstay. This was the principal aspect of the contradiction in industry. It was monism. Among the large, the medium, and the small, we take the large as the mainstay. Between the center and the regions, the center. Of the two sides of any contradiction, one is the principal side. As important as eight years' achievements are, we were feeling our way along nonetheless. It cannot be said that our planning of production was entirely correct, that it entirely reflected the objective laws. Planning is done by the whole party, not simply the planning committee or the economics committee, but by all levels. Everyone is involved. In this passage, Stalin is theoretically correct, but there is not yet a finely detailed analysis nor even the beginnings of a clear explanation. The Soviets did not distinguish among the large, the medium, and the small, the region and the center, nor did they promote concurrently industry and agriculture. They have not walked on two legs at all. Their rules and regulations hamstrung people, but we have not adequately studied and grasped our situation, and as a result, our plans have not fully reflected objective laws either. 9. Quote, 
let us examine Engels's formula. Engels's formula cannot be considered fully clear and precise because it does not indicate whether it was referring to the seizure by society of all or only part of the means of production. That is, whether all or only part of the means of production are converted into public property. Hence, this formula of Engels's may be understood either way. End quote. This analysis touches the essentials. The problem is dividing the means of production into two parts. To say the means of production are not commodities deserves study. 10. Quote, In this section, commodity production under socialism, Stalin has not comprehensively set forth the conditions for the existence of commodities. The existence of two kinds of ownership is the main premise for commodity production, but ultimately commodity production is also related to the productive forces. For this reason, even under completely socialized public ownership, commodity exchange will have to be operative in some areas. 11. Quote, it follows from this that Engels has in mind countries where capitalism and the concentration of production have advanced far enough both in industry and agriculture to permit the expropriation of all the means of production in the country and their conversion into public property. Engels consequently considers that in such countries, parallel with the socialization of all the means of production, commodity production should be put an end to. And that, of course, is correct. End quote. Stalin's analysis of Engels' formula is correct. At present, there is a strong tendency to do away with commodity production. People get upset the minute they see commodity production, taking it for capitalism itself. But it looks as if commodity production will have to be greatly developed and the money supply increased for the sake of the solidarity of several hundred million peasants. This poses a problem for the ideology of several hundred thousand cadres, as well as for the solidarity of several hundred million peasants. We now possess only a part of the means of production, but it appears that there are those who wish to declare at once ownership by the whole people, divesting the small and medium producers. But they fail to declare the category of ownership. Is it to be commune-owned or county-owned? To abolish commodities and commodity production in this way, merely by declaring public ownership, is to strip the peasantry. At the end of 1955, procurement and purchase got us almost 90 billion catties of grain, causing us no little trouble. Everyone was talking about food, and household after household was talking about unified purchase. But it was purchase, after all, not allocation. Only later did the crisis ease when we made the decision to make this 83 billion caddies of grain. I cannot understand why people have forgotten these things so promptly. 12. Quote, I leave aside in this instance the question of the importance of foreign trade to Britain and the vast part it plays in her national economy. I think that only after an investigation of this question can it be finally decided what would be the future fate of commodity production in Britain after the proletariat had assumed power and all the means of production had been nationalized. End quote. Fate depends on whether or not commodity production is abolished. 13. Quote, but here is a question. What are the proletariat and its party to do in countries, ours being a case in point, where the conditions are favorable for the assumption of power by the proletariat and the overthrow of capitalism, where capitalism has so concentrated the means of production in industry, 
that they may be expropriated and made the property of society, but where agriculture, notwithstanding the growth of capitalism, is divided up among numerous small and medium owner producers to such an extent as to make it impossible to consider the expropriation of these producers. Footnote 4. This would throw the peasantry into the camp of the enemies of the proletariat for a long time. End quote. In sum, the principle governing commodity production was not grasped. Chinese economists are Marxist-Leninist as far as book learning goes, but when they encounter economic practice, Marxism-Leninism gets shortchanged. Their thinking is confused. If we make mistakes, we will lead the peasantry to the enemy's side. 14 to 18. Lenin's answer may be briefly summed up as follows. Quote, 14. Favorable conditions for the assumption of power should not be missed. The proletariat should assume power without waiting until capitalism has succeeded in mining the millions of small and medium individual producers. 15. The means of production in industry should be expropriated and converted into public property. 16. As to the small and medium individual producers, they should be gradually united in producers' cooperatives, i.e. in large agricultural enterprises, collective farms. 17. Industry should be developed to the utmost, and the collective farms should be placed on the modern technical basis of large-scale production, not expropriating them, but on the contrary generously supplying them with first-class tractors and other machines. 18. In order to ensure an economic bond between town and country, between industry and agriculture, commodity production, exchange through purchase and sale, should be preserved for a certain period, it being the form of economic tie with the town which is alone acceptable to the peasants. And Soviet trade, state, cooperative and collective farm, should be developed to the full and the capitalists of all types and descriptions ousted from trading activity. End quote. The history of socialist construction in our country has shown that this path of development, mapped out by Lenin, has fully justified itself. These five points are all correct. 14. This passage has a correct analysis. Take conditions in China. There is development. 15. Our policy towards the national bourgeoisie has been to redeem their property. 16. We are developing the people's communes on an even larger scale. 17. This is precisely what we are doing now. 18. There are those who want no commodity production, but they are wrong. On commodity production, we still have to take it from Stalin, who in turn got it from Lenin. Lenin had said to devote the fullest energies to developing commerce. We would rather say, devote the fullest energies to developing industry, agriculture, and commerce. The essence of the problem is the peasant question. There are those who regard the peasant as even more conscious than the workers. We have carried through or are in the process of carrying through on these five items. Some areas still have to be developed, such as commune-run industry or concurrent promotion of industry and agriculture. 19. Quote, there can be no doubt that in the case of all capitalist countries, with a more or less numerous class of small and medium producers, this path of development is the only possible and expedient one for the victory of socialism. End quote. Lenin said the same thing. 20. Quote, Commodity production must not be regarded as something sufficient unto itself, 
something independent of the surrounding economic conditions. Commodity production is older than capitalist production. It existed in slave-owning society and served it, but did not lead to capitalism. It existed in feudal society and served it. Yet, although it prepared some of the conditions for capitalist production, it did not lead to capitalism. Bearing in mind that in our country, commodity production is not so boundless and all-embracing as it is under capitalist conditions, being confined within strict bounds thanks to such decisive economic conditions as social ownership of the means of production, the abolition of the system of wage labor, and the elimination of the system of exploitation. Why then, one asks, cannot commodity production similarly serve our socialist society for a period without leading to capitalism? End quote. This statement is a little exaggerated, but it is true that commodity production was not a capitalist institution exclusively. The second plenary session of the Central Committee suggested policies of utilizing, restricting, and transforming commodity production. This condition is fully operative in China. This point is entirely correct. We no longer have such circumstances and conditions. There are those who fear commodities. Without exception, they fear capitalism, not realizing that with the elimination of capitalists, it is allowable to expand commodity production vastly. We are still backward in commodity production behind Brazil and India. Commodity production is not an isolated thing. Look at the context. Capitalism or socialism? In a capitalist context, it is capitalist commodity production. In a socialist context, it is socialist commodity production. Commodity production has existed since ancient times. Buying and selling began in what history calls the Shang Commerce Dynasty. The last king of the Shang Dynasty, Shu, was competent in civil and military matters. But he was turned into a villain along with the first emperor of the Xin, footnote 5, and Cao Cao, footnote 6. This is wrong. Quote, better to have no books than complete faith in them. End quote, footnote 7. In capitalist society, there are no socialist institutions considered as social institutions, but the working class and socialist ideology do exist in capitalist society. The thing that determines commodity production is the surrounding economic conditions. The question is, can commodity production be regarded as a useful instrument for furthering socialist production? I think commodity production will serve socialism quite tamely. This can be discussed among the cadres. 21. Quote, it is said that, since the domination of social ownership of the means of production has been established in our country, and the system of wage labor and exploitation has been abolished, community production has lost all meaning and therefore should be done away with. End quote. Change our country to China and it becomes most intriguing. 22. Quote, Today there are two basic forms of socialist production in our country, state or publicly owned production and collective farm production, which cannot be said to be publicly owned. End quote. Today refers to 1952, 35 years after their revolution. We stand but nine years from ours. He refers to two basic forms. In the communes, not only land and machinery, but labor, seeds, and other means of production as well are commune-owned. Thus the output is so owned. But don't think the Chinese peasants are so wonderfully advanced. 
In Shuwu County, Honan, the party secretary, was concerned whether or not, in the event of flood or famine, the state would pay wages after public ownership was declared and the free supply system instituted. He was also concerned that in times of bumper harvests, the state would appropriate public grain but fail to pay wages, leaving the peasants to suffer whether the harvest succeeds or fails. This represents the concerns of the peasants. Marxists should be concerned with these problems. Our commodity production should be developed to the fullest, but it is going to take 15 years or more, and patience as well. We have waged war for decades. Now we still have to have patience, to wait for Taiwan's liberation, to wait for socialist construction to be going well. Don't hope for early victories. 23. Quote, how the two basic forms of ownership will ultimately become one is a special question which requires separate discussion. End quote. Stalin is avoiding the issue having failed to find a method or suitable formulation on the transition from collective to public ownership. 24. Quote, Consequently, our commodity production is not of the ordinary type, but is a special kind of commodity production, commodity production without capitalists, which is concerned mainly with the goods of associated socialist producers, the state, the collective farms, the cooperatives, the sphere of action of which is confined to items of personal consumption, which obviously cannot possibly develop into capitalist production, and which, together with its money economy, is designed to serve the development and consolidation of socialist production. End quote. The sphere of action is not limited to items of individual consumption. Some means of production have to be classed as commodities. If agricultural output consists of commodities, but industrial output does not, then how is exchange to be carried out? If our country is changed to China, the paragraph becomes all the more interesting to read. In China, not only consumer goods, but the agricultural means of production have to be supplied. Stalin never sold the means of production to the peasants. Khrushchev changed that. Let us not confuse the problem of the dividing line between socialism and communism with the problem of the dividing line between collective and public ownership. The collective ownership system leaves us with the problem of commodity production, the goal of which is consolidating the worker-peasant alliance and developing production. Today, there are those who say that the communism of the peasants is glorious. After one trip to the rural areas, they think the peasantry is simply wonderful, that they are about to enter paradise, that they are better than the workers. This is the surface phenomenon. We shall have to see if the peasants really have a communist spirit, and more than that, we shall have to examine the commune ownership system, including the extent to which the means of production and subsistence belong to communal collective ownership. As the county party committee secretary of Shu Wu Honan said, we still have to develop commodity production and not charge blindly ahead. 25. Quote, Further, I think that we must also discard certain other concepts taken from Marx's capital, where Marx was concerned with an analysis of capitalism and artificially applied to our socialist relations. It is natural that Marx used concepts, categories, which fully correspond to capitalist relations. But it is strange, to say the least, to use these concepts now, when the working class is not only not bereft of power and means of production, but on the contrary, is in possession of the power and controls the means of production. 
talk of labor power being a commodity and of hiring workers sounds rather absurd now under our system, as though the working class, which possesses means of production, hires itself and sells its labor power to itself. End quote. In particular, the means of production in the industrial sector. Commodity production has to be vastly developed, not for profits but for the peasantry, the agricultural industrial alliance and the development of production, especially after rectification. After the rectification and anti-rightist campaigns, labor power was no longer a commodity. It was in the service of the people, not the dollar. The labor power question is not resolved until labor power is no longer a commodity. 26. Quote, it is sometimes asked whether the law of value exists and operates in our country, under the socialist system. End quote. The law of value does not have a regulative function. Planning and politics in command play that role. 27. Quote, True, the law of value has no regulating function in our socialist production. End quote. In our society, the law of value has no regulative function, that is, has no determinative function. Planning determines production. E.g., for pigs or steel, we do not use the law of value. We rely on planning. And that's our reading for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.